Today's Animal Spirits Talk Your Book is presented by Granite Shares. Visit graniteshares.com slash ETFs to see if you're paying too much for commodity or high income ETF exposure. Welcome to Animal Spirits, the podcast that takes a completely different look at markets and investing. Hosted by Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson, two guys who study the markets as a passion and invest for all the right reasons. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. So Ben, this week we sat down with Will Rind of Granite Shares to talk how commodities can fit into a portfolio how they should be traded, how they track an index, and what were some of your main takeaways? Well, I think, first of all, there probably isn't a more hated asset class out there than commodities, and maybe rightly so because the performance has been so poor as of late. We had that mid-2000s commodity super cycle where they went just crazy, avocados. And ever since then, I guess especially since the financial crisis, they had their huge crash and maybe had a little bit of a comeback, but have basically crashed again. What do you mean they've crashed again? Which ones in particular? I guess gold had a comeback through 2011-ish, and then since then has has fallen back. And this is one of your favorite topics, I think, that we cover is is gold. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that and what's happened since gold became one of the biggest ETFs in the world. So I was actually surprised that according to ETF.com, there's 120 ETFs traded in the US markets, commodity ETFs, with a total assets under management of $12.7 billion. That's, less, that's way less than I would have thought. I think, I'm guessing a lot of it has to do with A, the fact that, as I said, the performance has been so poor, and so the values have just gone down, and B, the performance has been so poor, so people have poured out of them. And I mean, if you look at one of those asset allocation quilts, and I pr- produce one of those every year, commodities has been at the bottom for a long time. I think finally in 2017... They had a little bit of a better run. And I think it's it's hard to lump gold in there because gold is kind of its own beast in this stuff. But if you look at just like a broad basket of commodities, they haven't performed very well. And it was kind of interesting to hear Will talk about how he views that world. And I think a lot of people probably don't understand exactly how it works because it is such a boom-bust phenomenon there where you see these massive gains in a short period of time, but then you see these bone-crushing losses and volatility. And so if you look at, I did this, I ran some numbers last year through the end of 2017, the Bloomberg Commodities Index goes back to 1991. In 1991 to 2007, the annual returns in Bloomberg Commodities Index was like 2.2%. For the S&P, it was 9.9%. Wait, hold on. You said, you said 91 to 2007 or do you mean 2017? 2017. Sorry. Okay. Hey, you're actually listening. So 2% or so for the Bloomberg Commodities Index, almost 10% for the S&P, the volatility was virtually the same. It was actually a little higher, 14.7 for the Bloomberg Commodities Index, 14.2 for the S&P. One month T-bills did 2.6% over that time and had a volatility of 0.6%. So cash-like returns with stock-like volatility. Yes. And that's obviously not good. And this is maybe kind of a cherry-picked scenario. It doesn't include some higher inflationary environments. This is more a period of like disinflation and even deflation during the recession. But we talk with Will about this a little bit. And one of the more important questions we asked him, I thought that was interesting was, do we need a higher inflationary environment to see commodities do well? And so that's kind of an interesting thing. We can kind of maybe add some color to that after the interview. All right. So talking about the boom bust nature of commodities, 
when gold was booming in the late 2000s, everybody wanted to get into it. In 2011, at the peak, it had more in assets than SPY. It had $77 billion. And according to this article, if it were a stock, the ETF would be the 27th largest stock in the S&P 500, bigger than Citigroup, Bank of America, United Technologies, Walt Disney, and a bunch of other companies. And since then, GLD is talking about the boom-bust nature. From its highs in 2011 to its lows in 2016, gold fell 45%, but the total assets in GLD was down 72%. So obviously, people left much faster, which is you know, which is what you would expect. So when they were on par, they both had around $78 billion in assets. Now GLD has roughly $13 billion in assets and the S&P has almost $270 billion in assets or the SPY. And a lot of that has to do with flows, as you pointed out, but it is it is pretty insane how that just, that was, I mean, what a top ticker, right? That That is like your typical headline indicator that you pick up after the fact. So why don't we let Will talk about ETFs and listen to the conversation that we have, and then Ben and I will be back for some more commentary. Yeah, stick around after. We have Will Ryan today from Granite Shares. Thank you very much for coming in. Great. Thank you to be here. Today, we're going to talk about some of your products, particularly in the commodity space. And I think there's a really good time for you to be talking with us because stocks have been on a run for so long, and conversely, commodities have done so poorly for so long. And I wouldn't be surprised if people have just abandoned hope in the space and think that the future will look like the past, which is how we often do these things. So just to put some context on that, the S&P 500 has outperformed the Bloomberg Commodity Index for seven straight years, turning $1 into 55 cents in commodities and stocks growing, $1 in stocks growing to $2.47 over the same time. So have, have investors completely abandoned hope? No, I don't think they've abandoned hope. I mean, commodities are cyclical. So particularly since early 2016, you know, commodity prices have actually risen fairly significantly. And that's been a positive sign for the market. But you know, commodities are cyclical, and people just need to remember that. There are going to be periods you know, where supply and demand influences prices, and you have you know, periods of very, very positive growth and positive price appreciation, and also periods where you have you know, pretty vicious bear markets as well. When you're trying to set expectations for investors, how do you explain the boom-bust mentality of the commodities subset? We've got to remember that all asset classes are cyclical. And you know, we're talking about equities coming off of a great period. But you know, I remember very, very clearly before the financial crisis, you know, we were talking about a lost decade in U.S. equities and that the you know, returns in equities people go 10 years and make nothing and how quickly people kind of forget you know, that. So, so it's a function of time period. And I think that we'll need to think about commodities and the role in the portfolio. So are you buying commodities because you want to diversify and that means you want to manage risk in a more sort of meaningful way or are you just looking for price appreciation because there are two different things and obviously the market cycles come into play uh, regardless of which one you're looking for. So let me ask you a dumb question. How do you think about in terms of managing risk, why do you think that commodities will add diversification benefits to a traditional 60/40 portfolio? Yeah, so so commodities in a, in a traditional portfolio, they just move and act differently. So when you blend a different return streams together, so a return stream of commodities plus equities plus fixed income, typically what that means is you get a low correlation by adding in commodities because of that reason. So from an overall diversification perspective, they provide diversification in a sort of traditional portfolio. Or can we say that they provide potential diversification benefits? Because it's certainly possible that we see another, let's say that interest rates go high and there's a quick bond bear market and bring stocks down. It's certainly possible in that case that commodities can fall as well. 
Correct. So, I mean, from a diversification perspective, there's positive and negative aspects. And and again, this is a great point because when we talk about diversification, what that means to a lot of people is you have different return streams that all appreciate at different rates. And of course, that's just not the reality. It means that your asset classes go up and down, whether diversified or not. Yeah. So I think people might have unrealistic expectations when thinking about non-correlated return streams. What they really want is positive correlation in a bull market and negative correlation when stocks enter a bear market. And exactly. you can't promise that with any asset class, whether it's commodities or, or managed futures or anything else. No, you, you certainly can't. So, so I think we, we both agree that looking at the overall portfolio makes sense. But if we're drilling down to just commodities, if you're looking for one factor to explain it, do we need a much higher inflationary environment for commodities to do well? Or, I mean, is that the biggest pull for these things in terms of expected returns going forward? I, I think the, you know, you've got to drill it back to the basics. And the basics are supply and demand. And so for me, you know, the basics of the commodity markets are do we have more demand than we have supply? So inflation is obviously a, an important factor. And I think that if we do get more inflation, that will have a positive effect on markets. But you've got to think back to, say, a period like the early 2000s, where we arguably had very little inflation, but we had one of the largest bull markets that we've ever had in commodities. That was really a demand-driven environment and purely demand or more demand than supply within global commodity markets. No, it's sort of interesting on that point that I think when we think about supply and demand from the investing standpoint, we think about buyers and sellers. But with commodities, they're, they're products, and there's people that that supply soybeans and there's people that buy soybeans, we're thinking in terms of like buyers and sellers of, of the ETF or the, or the futures product, which is totally different. Exactly. And I think that's important, you know, from a global commodity market that, you know, you've got to remember that commodities is very macro and then we apply it sort of on a very micro basis because we're looking at individual commodities. It's arguably the most macro thing that you have because we have a global population that increases every year. So every year we're adding about 83 million people to the world's population net. So that's a country the size of Germany. So as we increase every year the global population, we're increasing demand for resources. And demand for resources is expressed, obviously, all across the commodity spectrum. So you, you said earlier that these things are boom and bust. And I think that every investor knows that, eyes wide open going in. Do you think that that lends itself to timing the commodities or is this more of a strategic buy and hold position in a portfolio? And maybe there's room for both. Yeah, I, th- I think, again, it depends on what you want to do and how you want to apply it within your portfolio and how you run money. Because there's a big difference between a much more academic view, which is, hey, I hold 10% of my portfolio in commodities because I want a well-diversified portfolio and I know that these return streams are different. That's very different than some kind of market timing philosophy, which is, I think commodities are undervalued here. I buy them here in the hope that they appreciate in price. And I think that like like every asset class, there's, there's room for both. I mean, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Everybody manages money slightly differently. So we, we talk about this quite a bit, that technology has been such a deflationary force, particularly in, you know, in, in luxury goods, I suppose, uh, electronics particularly. Is that, has that been a headwind for commodities? I think it has, specifically from the supply side. And obviously... You know, we've always had technological advancement, first of all. Technology is not a new thing, particularly when it comes to commodities. You know, moving from an agrarian society to industrial economy, you know, we always have advances in technology which improve production or the ability to, to get commodities or produce commodities, to mine, to uh, produce from deep water wells, whatever it may be. And from that perspective, 
one of the reasons we've had to do that is because demand for commodities has been increasing, you know, and demand for commodities increases as populations get bigger. Today, you know, 2018, daily demand for oil, for example, is about 100 million barrels a day. You know, you go back to 2000, and that was about 76 million barrels per day. So we've had to improve technology to increase production in order to satisfy demand. And how that then manifests in, term, in terms of price is that, you know, when you get more supply, that that could come on the market because of increased technology and therefore more efficient production techniques. That could come on for other reasons as well. But if there's the equivalent level of demand to match that, then more demand than supply price go higher and less demand than supply prices go lower. And so the kind of balance in terms of supply and demand you know, affects the underlying price and price will be brought into line you know, regardless of what happens. So taking that from this high-level thematic macro view and then make it into actually an investable product, can you talk a little bit about why maybe it's been hard for some people to translate the actual prices of these commodities into usable products and where that some disconnect can lie sometimes in the way that these products are structured? So, so yeah, like oftentimes you look at the price of crude oil and then you look at the ETF that's supposed to be tracking it and it is it just doesn't. So maybe just in layman's terms, like why does that gap exist? I think you kind of have to wind the clock back to you know, the beginnings of commodity investing and how people did it. So of course, the most obvious example is people just used to buy stocks. So you wanted to get exposure to to gold and people would go out and buy a gold mining company. You want to get exposure to oil, people go out and buy an oil production company or a service company or something like that. And then through sort of advances, if you want to look at it that way, um, on the product side or the asset management side, you know, now you can create more specific exposures that give access to, say, underlying commodity futures. But specifically in the case of oil, for example, I think there's sometimes a disconnect because people think of the price of oil being a barrel of crude and then think about, well, how can I invest in that? That's actually uninvestable unless you're physically buying a barrel of crude. So the closest proxy is the crude oil futures market or the the oil futures market. And that's typically the price of oil one month, delivery one month from today, which is slightly different. And therefore, when you buy contracts or futures contracts, that is a different market than thinking about the spot. And really, the only way to achieve the spot price is if you hold the commodity itself, which really that's only possible in metals, i.e. gold, you know, silver, platinum, palladium, which are naturally stored within vaults. So in terms of the actual products, so you have there, so Granite Shares has two commodity ETFs, um, or, or more, but two broad-based commodity ETFs. One is COMB, which tracks the Bloomberg Commodity Index. The other is COMG, which tracks the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index. Now, these are different in the sense that the Bloomberg one is only 36% energy, whereas the Goldman one is 68% energy. Now, have you thought about an equal weight commodity index? We've thought about it. I think probably just to to explain kind of what we're trying to do with these two funds. So, you know, we recognize that in commodity world, there's not really kind of an S&P 500 in terms of like a benchmark that, that everyone would sort of flock to and therefore have their allocation based upon one. There's kind of two. And really, those two are the Bloomberg Commodity Index and the S&P GSCI. And so what we try to do is just provide you know the lowest cost, you know, most efficient access to those benchmarks. And we're not taking a view over the way those are constructed. It's more just some people like the Bloomberg, some people like the, the GSCI. It sort of depends on what you're trying to do. The difference, just so people know, 
is that the S&P GSCI is really purely production weighted. So it's just about the most or the highest produced commodities in the world get weighted the highest. It's kind of like a market cap weighting. Yeah, so, okay, I was thinking of a bond equities. index, but same yeah, thing a little, a little bit like market yep. cap. So you have a, a very dominant weighting towards energy or oil. In the Bloomberg Commodity Index, you have a sector cap. So to stop a overexposure to one sector, you have um, something weighted, say, energy at 33%. So you can only have a maximum weighting of 33% at the sector level and then 15% at the commodity level. So it's more of a kind of disciplined approach to diversification. So what's different about the way that Granite Shares builds these portfolios and why hasn't anybody done this before you? Yeah, I think, you know, so I've been involved in commodities a long time. And really the the most sort of obvious thing is that they've been kind of a neglected area of the portfolio because most people, most investors, most large investment houses focus on equities and bonds. Therefore, commodities are kind of a part where they've never really been done that well, to be honest with you. And what that means is you've had, you know, typically poorly or suboptimal structured vehicles uh, in the way of partnerships, in the way of exchange rate notes or ETNs. Um, You've had very high management fees and very complicated sort of investment strategies. And what we try to do is just simplify all of that and create a better product at a lower price. So what COMB, or we call COMB and COMG do, is offer exposure to a broad commodity futures benchmark um, at industry low prices. And most crucially, I think, for a lot of investors, we don't have K1s, which was like a big uh, a headache for a lot of advisors around tax time with some of the more um, traditional funds. So that's kind of what we're trying to do, is just provide you know, easier access to commodities um, for investors that previously were interested in the space, but maybe couldn't or didn't have exposure because they, they were confused about the options. So you also have a, a gold fund, BAR is the, the ticker, and this is one of Michael's favorite subjects. And so one of our questions has always been, you, you mentioned supply and demand, obviously, but why does gold have a positive expected return going forward? Or I guess, does gold have a positive well, return? Yeah. Why would you say that it does? Well, if you just look at the price of gold, obviously, since the US you know, came off of the gold standard uh, in the early 70s, if you just look at what gold has done, then it has obviously had a positive price appreciation over the years. I think people just find the the framing of it difficult because you've got to put it into a framework which includes you know cash, equities, and bonds, all of which distribute some kind of income stream. And therefore, people use a mathematical formula, particularly in the case of equities, but to say, okay, well, here's my you know, by discounted cash flow and therefore here's the valuation of something. And they come up with a risk premium. And for gold, obviously, you can't do that because it doesn't generate any any income. But I think the the sort of expected return of gold has been somewhere between cash um, and equities. And that is just what's happened since the early 70s. Also, let me give you some cherry pick data. Gold and the Dow in January 1980 were both 800. The Dow is 25,000 and gold is 1,200. And gold adjusted for inflation is still below its 1980 peak. Now, that excludes the obvious fact that from 1976 to the end of 1979, gold had a 700% increase, one of the most marvelous runs of any asset class ever. So I guess you know you say that the numbers say that gold has a positive rate of return, but aside from the 70s, and I know that's like saying take, take Amazon out of the returns of the S&P 500, it exists. 
why does gold have a positive expected return? Like, why isn't it just going to maybe track inflation for better or worse, or maybe even worse? Well, I think that one of the major reasons is you can't increase the supply of gold in the way that you can increase the supply of a number of other asset classes that people are probably more familiar with. So the only way you can increase the supply of gold is if you increase mine production. And mine production has a fairly stable rate, about 3% per annum. So that kind of goes into the into the reason of why is gold why does gold a store of value? Or why do people say that? Because you can't print more gold like money. That gold has a very stable supply, and therefore, all things being equal, if you have uh, demand growing and a fairly static supply, then you have the potential for price appreciation. So, do you think that I'm sure you've heard this a bunch? Do you think that Bitcoin is the new gold? <laughs> I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a new gold, but you know, to me, I view it as a commodity, just like gold, and so therefore, it's a. It's an asset that people want to trade, and people have very emotional uh, points of view on it versus, say, other asset classes. And typically, you know, what's the reason to own gold? I can give you all sorts of logical reasons, but at the end of the day, I think a lot of people view it with quite an emotional lens, and it's the same for same for Bitcoin. It's just, do you believe it has value or not, and where do you believe it's going to go? Yeah, I can't I can't prove this, of course, but I would suspect that these type of of asset classes that have these boom bust profiles have terrible dollar weighted returns because, of course, people buy after you know after the run. But in my opinion, the the reason why you would hold gold or commodities in a portfolio is because they truly, you, to your point, you can't model them. You have no idea where they're going. For better or worse, they're going to provide you with a different return stream than stocks and bonds. Exactly. And, and you know, people forget with gold that it's genuinely uncorrelated to anything else. And that does have value within a portfolio. So if you're trying to manage risk, and I think, again, I'm not a proponent of saying that people should be buying gold to expect some kind of you know, wild uh, outperformance. Uh, that's not the way I view gold at all. I view gold as a risk management tool, and I view gold as a permanent piece of real estate within the portfolio that provides completely uncorrelated return stream, but that has the potential to do well when other parts of your portfolio, hopefully the major parts of your portfolio, are performing poorly. So market dislocations, a unexpected rise in inflation, a weakening of the dollar, you know, so on and so forth. And I think that that is where gold really has value. And a lot of people don't get that. Yeah. So as, as we wrap up, you can have a framework for pricing stocks. You could say dividend yield plus earnings growth plus or minus a, a multiple. And you could do the same thing for bonds, even much more precisely. With gold, it's really hard to your point. So do you do you have a expected return assumption for gold or is that just not part of it? Is it more of a, a risk management than a return additive part? Well, I would sort of argue slightly differently because I think that you know, the point I was trying to make earlier is that just because we have a framework to evaluate stocks and bonds doesn't mean to say that's accurate. Oh, if totally. we, had, if yeah. we had a perfect... If you just punch in a formula and it would tell you the price of or the valuation of whatever stock or bond, we'd all be on the beach. No one would be, no one would be working in financial services. There'd be no point. So why does it not work? It doesn't work because it's not precise. It's just a framework. And so gold, I would argue, is actually a lot easier because you have the cost of producing the stuff, just like any other, any other material in the world. So what does it cost to, to get an ounce out of the ground? And then what is it selling for? And what is the direction of travel in terms of supply and demand? Now, that, that's, not, that's not, again, a formula. That doesn't give you a precise number to say, oh, it's, it's cheap or expensive. But I think it's a helpful framework and, and, a, and a much simpler framework to evaluate whether something has kind of the potential for fair value or not. 
And you know, people again forget that gold is actually a real thing. It costs companies money to take it out of the ground. And so there's a marginal cost of production involved. And then there's the fact of, well, are people buying more of it or less than it? And what is it trading in terms of being expensive historically or not to other asset classes? Why are there no oil bugs? <laughs> there are plenty of oil, oil hawks out there. I think it's just something that probably goes back to because it's so difficult to store and, and obviously oil itself you know, decays over time. People just think of it as a barometer of energy or, or global economic health, all sorts of other reasons. But, I, but I'm not sure people think of it in the same way from an sort of investing perspective, much more of a trading because you know, it's much more volatile. But there, there are plenty of people that even right now are calling for oil prices over $100, for example. Well, thank you so much for coming in. We really appreciate having you on. Michael, Ben, thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. I really liked how Will framed investing in commodities. He spoke a lot about, first of all, the cyclicality of them. And because they are so cyclical, maybe you can't look at their returns in a vacuum and compare them to, to cash because due to the nature of the path of their returns, they can add to a total portfolio. I think that's the problem is people look to them as more of a return enhancer. And he's saying, no, 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 these should be more of a risk management tool where you have something in your portfolio that is going to be completely different than everything else that you own. And unfortunately, that difference, when it is different, can hurt you on the downside as well when it doesn't act as you as you want it to because the correlation doesn't always work on a simple relationship. So the reason why I've been so anti-gold, just the idea of... And by the way, I'm not anti-gold the asset class at all. Matter of fact, I bought it maybe two years ago for a trade that I think I exited with a maybe 1% or 2% loss. By the way, I think you secretly have a crush on gold because you've written about it a lot. Well, no. But the reason why I dislike gold is because the people, the, the gold bugs, don't talk about it in the context of an overall portfolio. They talk about it as an alternative to, to stocks and bonds when really they are complementary asset due to the nature of the return stream. But people that try and scare the financially illiterate into buying gold because of X, Y, and Z, like to me, that's just... That's horseshit, and I do not like that. But thinking about gold in a portfolio, so matter of fact, I don't know if, if people would know this, but GLD has actually outperformed SPY since inception uh, in 2004. And if you look just at a chart of GLD since 2004 and a chart of SPY, they have gone in very different directions, which is why they might work well in a portfolio together. And I, I'm working on a post to show the comparisons of a 60-40 portfolio, so just 60% stocks, 40% bonds versus 60% stocks, 20% bonds, 20% gold. And that had basically the exact same returns as a 60-40 portfolio, but it had much better risk characteristics. I think it was only down 27% in the bottom of 09, whereas a 60-40 portfolio was down 35%. So I do think that there can be a place in a portfolio for commodities. I just don't think that it gets spoken about that way. It's usually all or nothing. And I, I did some obvious cherry picking in the interview with Will that I said that the Dow in 1980 was 800 and so is gold. And today, obviously, we know that the Dow is at 25,000 and gold is still at 1,200. However, that excludes one of the most miraculous runs that any asset class has ever had. So this is a quote from Peter Bernstein's book, The History of an Obsession, The Power of Gold, which I highly recommend. He said, 
That fantastic bull market in gold from $35 in 1968 to $850 in the climax of January 1980 is an extraordinary episode in financial history. It represented a gain of 30% a year over a 12-year period, far in excess of the inflation rate of 7.5% from 1968 to 1980. Even the greatest bull markets and stock market history pale by comparison. Here's where it gets nuts. The highest total annual return in the stock market over a 12-year period was 19% from the middle of 1949 to the middle of 1961. In 1959, the amount invested in gold was about one-fifth of the market value of all U.S. common stocks. In 1980, the $1.6 trillion invested in gold exceeded the market value of $1.4 trillion in U.S. stocks. So my point being with this commodity thing is that generally speaking, due to the boom-bust nature of it, the dollar-weighted returns are probably awful. Now, if you if you like if you could put it in a portfolio with a rules based methodology, that's fine. But people tend not to do that. And the way that you can look at any of these market statistics is change the start and end date, and you can make any point you want. You can, like you said, you cherry picked a lot of data here for both. I think good and bad for gold. So I think that's the problem with people is they cherry pick. They start gold from two thousand, or they start it from nineteen eighty, and they just use a starting and end date that proves their point. So I think. It's one of those things that doesn't have to be all or nothing. And unfortunately, a lot of investors take it that way. I think the other interesting point here to point out about commodities, one of my my favorite authors on this stuff and looking at the history is William Bernstein, no relation to Peter. He wrote in his book, Skating to Where the Puck Was, that basically before 1990, it was almost impossible for any US portfolio manager to invest in commodities futures, which is a lot of the way that these people do things. So he said, unless you were like on trading places and you got into the pit in the futures market and could actually do that, it was impossible for anyone in the in the US fund industry to actually invest there. And I guess PIMCO was one of the first ones who did it in the 1990s. And so it's hard to say what all those investment dollars pouring into commodities has done to their return stream or the makeup of how they're structured and how they work. Because in the past, it was mostly businesses and farmers and such hedging using these futures. And now there's a huge amount of investment dollars. And I don't know what that means, but I think it probably means more competition in that space has made it harder than some of the historical back tests in the 70s and 80s show. And so that has changed the term structure. And you actually wrote about this. You said, investors are more likely hedgers and speculators in commodities in the past enjoyed a positive roll yield, meaning the futures contracts were priced at a discount to spot prices because these markets were mainly full of corporations, commodity producers, and individuals who were hedging their exposure and trying to stay afloat. And obviously, as you just mentioned, now it's like completely the opposite. It's, it's people that are, that are trading these commodities. And I am, like I said, I'm, doing, I'm writing about this again. And I was looking at an article from the New York Times in 1978 an article called Personal Investing, The Soaring Demand for Gold Coins. And I found that, so also talking about 1978. So when you're looking at like back tests and historical performances and stuff like that, you have to keep in mind what was available to the public. So you talk about like the history of gold. Well, the premium for bullion gold coins usually ranges from 3 to 10%, depending upon the number purchased at the time. So 3 to 10% just to get into gold. In addition, the overwhelming majority of states charge a sales tax on gold coins ranging as high as 8%. So you could be paying 15% just to buy gold. And then who are you selling it to? By the way, what is the, what do you think the correlation is between people who use the term bullion and 
a charlatan in the gold market. Got to be like point, 0.95, right? Yeah, it's high. It's very high. Kind of like the macro people who say fiat currency. Right. Like, you know they're a charlatan right. when they use that term. So the run in gold in the 70s was amazing, but the fever really started in 1978, according to this article. So think about it. Like There was two years of straight up prices and then a crash. Yeah, it is. I, I think the, the whole point here is just that these commodities are so volatile that they bring about a lot of different emotions from investors. And a lot of times they bring in the wrong ones. And so I agree with you, like the dollar return weighted data for these has got to be awful because when we have these boom and bust periods, people rush in when things are going well, people rush out when things aren't going well. And because there are no cash flows or models you can use, and I, I do agree with Will when he said, well, there are no really models you can use to for the equity markets either. If there was, it would be much easier. But I think with commodities, because there are no cash flows or dividends or income, it draws in and tempts people to bring those emotions into play. And that's what kind of probably heightens even those boom bust periods. And so it just makes it hard to have a placeholder. But I think what he's what they're doing at Granite Shares is kind of interesting because they're basically trying to be, I guess, the vanguard of commodities and making it low cost, tax efficient. And I think because of the way a lot of these products are structured in the past, that hasn't really existed. It's been a lot harder for investors to get that exposure if they want it in terms of like a buy and hold structure. So you and I have both written about the permanent portfolio, where a quarter of the portfolio is stocks, a quarter of the portfolio is, is bonds, a quarter of the portfolio is cash, and a quarter of the portfolio is uh, either gold or, or some sort of commodity sleeve. And I think that that is totally reasonable. I can absolutely 100% get behind somebody wanting to do that. Now, sticking with it is a whole other story. But like the idea of commodities in a portfolio, I think I'm, I'm cool with. I just don't like the idea that gold is an alternative to the stock market. Right. And it just has to be something that you're willing to rebalance into the pain for potentially a long time. And then when we have that period coming back, and that's why I've written about a lot, the question I've always posed is, are commodities for trading or investing. And I think it's more probably a trading thing or a tactical sleeve, but that's almost just as hard to to stick with. Let me push back. And I'm not going to say Japan, but the US has had long periods of time with negative returns between you know 66 to 82 or the lost decade from 2000 to 2009. So could you not say the same thing about stocks that they're for trading, not for investing? Fair. The, the thing is stocks have a positive expected return and I don't think commodities do. That would be my pushback to earning the returns in commodities when they do have these enormous returns. And I, that's why I think more of a trend-following approach is kind of interesting in commodities. But that's tough to do as well because it could be dormant for a very long time. If commodities don't have a positive expected return, can they still provide value to a portfolio of, of bonds and stocks? That's actually like one of the upsides of volatility. My and answer I think, is yes, they can. Yes. If you have a volatile piece in your portfolio and you're willing to rebalance into the pain and you have this bone-crushing volatility... In the construct of an overall portfolio, it actually can add value. The problem is, as we said, sticking with it. And is it is it worth it to put yourself through that bone-crushing volatility if you can't handle it? And so I think that it really comes down to the investor and what sort of expectations they have for something like this, for this kind of piece. Yep. All right. Will, thank you very much for coming on. That was really awesome. Next week, Ben and I speak to iShares. We're going to talk to them about their multi-factor international ETF which is pretty timely considering how horribly international stocks have done relative to, to the U.S. So stick around. We'll, uh, we'll have that next Monday. Mm-hmm.